Up From the Ashes, episode number eight, The Alien Oro, The Star Lost, season one. Well, there was only one season. Episode seven. First aired November 2nd, 1973 on CTV, starring The Usual Suspects and also starring Alexandra Bastido and Walter Koenig with this week's special guest, Nathan Marchand. Hello and welcome to another episode of Up From The Ashes. Up From The Ashes is a podcast celebrating and critiquing what some call the worst sci-fi series of all time. And then as we do so, exploring science fiction and sci-fi tropes as we go along. And we're doing it in such a way that, uh, well, we watch it so you don't have to unless you want to. I'm Ben, Ben Avery. I am a science fiction writer. My book, Ghosts of the Future, is out there now. Check it out, benavery.com. I'm also probably the biggest Star Lost fan that I know, because I don't know any other Star Lost fans. <laughs> and I'm not here alone. I am also, I've also, and I'm not here alone. I've also been joined by my co-host, my guest host for this week is a returning guest host, and that is... Nathan Marchand. Nathan, how you doing? I'm doing fine. And I, I just want to say thank you. I, I don't know if you're planning on bringing any of the other guests back. It was a surprise when you got a hold of me over the weekend and said, hey, you want to come back on? I'm like, I thought you weren't doing repeating guests. And your response was, my show, my rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my plan was to get someone new every week. Uh, but I, you had mentioned that you wanted to be on this episode when you saw that Walter Koenig was on an episode. Oh, he's on two, actually. <laughs> he is on two. The other one's already been spoken for. That's fine. Uh, actually, it's been spoken for by that person that is probably no not probably is definitely a, a bigger fan of the star loss than i am oh okay. uh, and we'll get to it when we get to that episode and if it doesn't work out for him to be on then um i'll just lie about whoever does come on and say that they are the person that i was talking <laughs> about but but anyway walter koenig is someone that uh, i believe we have both met yes yes I, I met him at gen con i don't quite remember the year it was, I think I want to say, I want to say it's like 2012. We'll talk about it in a moment, but we both met him. He is the only actor from Star Trek that I've met. And also he is the only actor from oh. the Star Lost that I have met, surprisingly enough. So <laughs> uh, just so people remember who you are, you were on uh, episode three of the podcast, which was to talk about episode mm -hmm. two of the Star Lost. Two, uh, but you are a yeah. podcaster. You are a writer. You are a... Um, fan uh, especially of of kaiju yeah, yeah. and of godzilla kaiju and, star trek a yeah, lot of um, things and yeah. you've been on my other podcast strangers and aliens where we've mm -hmm. talked about kaiju star trek superman we've seen godzilla together we've seen star trek 2 together and we saw william shatner bill shatner himself talk for what felt like three hours <laughs> Um, was probably closer <laughs> to an hour and a half, but it, it only felt that long because of those chairs, man, that those old theater <laughs> chairs that when I got out of that chair, I had to unfold my body. 
I felt like I was a lawn chair that Snoopy was trying to unfold for the Thanksgiving dinner and just not wanting to snap open. But that's not why we're here to talk. We're here to talk about the Star Lost. We're here to talk about the alien Oro. And we kind of broke up the routine a little bit last episode, which uh, you wouldn't have, have heard because... Um, no, you haven't been listening along no. because you haven't been watching along because you are no. you are stuck back in episode two, which means you skipped no. over all of those episodes in between there and here, and means you missed absolutely nothing because this is episodic. <laughs> this is episodic seventies <laughs> television that does not build on itself. In fact, I would say the only order that's required of you. You can watch this show in any order, except you need to watch the pilot episode first. If you're going to watch it, you watch that first because that sets everything up. And you need to watch this episode, the alien Oro, before the return of Oro, because he can't return <laughs> until he's actually been one play, you know, been somewhere before. And so this episode yeah. that does have a sequel episode, which is uh, the only such thing with a returning character like that. Now the computer character, he's a returning recurring character, but he's actually, I would, I would call him main cast. So normally we would talk about the episode first, but I want to talk about our, our cast first. I, I want to talk about who we have on this episode and also the uh, the people who worked on it. So uh, first things first, Joseph Scanlon. We've talked about him before. We're going to talk about him again. He directed some Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. Oh, really? This is someone, though, who had a very strong directing career. And we talked about him. We're going to talk about him again because he, he did direct uh, how many episodes of The Star Lost was. It? I think it was four uh, six. He directed six episodes of of the Star Lost. Oh, six. Yeah. He's got to be the most prolific out of all of them. He, he definitely is. Uh, the reason I have four episodes stuck in my head was because he did four episodes of Next Generation. Does it say which ones? Because those I would know like like that. Yeah, I can tell you. Um, he did the Big Goodbye. <laughs> that was was that the first or just a Dixon Hill episode or the first Dixon Hill episode? I thought it was the the Casino episode where they go down to the planet and no, that's the Holodeck episode. It is. It's, yeah. It's uh, so it Dixon is the Hill it's Dixon Hill. He did Skin of Evil, the t- the Tasha Yar. I don't know if I would brag about that one, but <laughs> uh, you know he did it. He did it. Uh, Contagion, okay, uh, which is one that I really wouldn't know that one by name. And Time Squared, which is the episode that oh. had a, a, the duplicate Captain Picard. Now let's talk about the writers. Two writers on this. One is Marion Waldman, who has six acting credits to her name. From 1972 to 1980, uh, including a TV movie called A Cosmic Christmas, which I really want to check out and see because that sounds fascinating. What is that about? I have no idea, but it, it sounds interesting. She's credited, though, as voice of Townie. So... <laughs> What'd she do? ADR and extra? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then as a writer, she has four different shows that she worked on. But she worked on Police Surgeon. She wrote four episodes of that. She wrote one episode of uh, Salty. This is not the singing songbook for those of you who are Christian kids growing up in the 80s. Um, that was a deep cut. It was basically a TV show that was the the seal version of Lassie or Flipper. 
And and then she worked on a show called High Hopes, which was, I guess, sounds like a, a soap opera set in Toronto. The other writer on this show was Mort Forer. And Mort Forer worked on seven different TV shows, including a few episodes of Police Surgeon, Salty. No, noticing a pattern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they apparently became something of a, a writing team because they did work on the Salty episode together and they worked on the Star Lost episode together. He did six episodes of Police Surgeon and I haven't looked at them side by side. He also worked on High Hopes and he worked on a show called For the Record, which for the record, I have no idea what it's about. And finally, our connecting point to almost every single episode, he worked on an episode of The Littlest Hobo. And I really wish, <laughs> I really wish I had a sound effect that I could play every time we talk about The Littlest Hobo. Did we talk about The Littlest Hobo on the episode you were on? No. Okay. It was after no. your episode that I realized so many of these Canadian actors and writers and directors have been a part of this TV show about a do-gooder wandering German shepherd that was on TV at the perfect <laughs> time for me as a child. I remember The Littlest Hobo as a concept. I remember it as a thing on TV. I remember a dog. I remember nothing else about this show. I could not tell you a single episode plot other than I remember this was a show that existed. I will tell you, when you said the title which I had never heard of before. I, the first thing that came to my mind was like Oliver Twist, but in like <laughs> modern day. So I picture these little, this little, this little like 10 year old street urchin. Nope. It's a dog. It's, it's a German shepherd <laughs> who just wanders around and helps people. Yeah. I mean, as they do. So something else, we have an actress here who is a guest star, Alexandra Bastido. I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but I am going to say it that way just as confidently as if I did know. Yep. She was in a lot of things. Uh, British actress, I believe, but she was in Batman Begins. She was? Yep. Yep. Who is she in Batman Begins? Gotham Society Dame. <laughs> So she kind of worked throughout the 80s and kind of sporadically through through the 80s and 90s and 2000s. So talking about Walter Koenig then, this is a man who his career starts in 1962 with an uh, uncredited part on combat. And then he did just he was a working actor through the 60s. He was on The Untouchables, General Hospital, uh, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Ben Casey, Gidget, I Spy, Mannix. And then he had his big break in 67 with Star Trek, where he was brought on because he kind of maybe resembled someone from the monkeys. Uh, he kind yep. of was a Davy Jones kind of a look. And and so he and they wanted someone who would bring in the younger viewers, maybe bring in a little bit of that. Not that this was a thing then, but a little bit of that Tiger Beat audience. Uh, and then uh, they made him Russian, which was because. You know, Star Trek, we're looking into the future, which is utopian and it's good and it's 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 bright and, and we're not going to be enemies anymore, even though there's still a little bit of, uh, you know, Russian pride with him where he is definitely trying to top everyone else as far as this was, an, it was a Russian invention. Um, <laughs> but he was in 36 episodes of Star Trek then. And then after that, continued on with just bit parts here and there. The Virginian, Ironside, uh, 
a bit part in the Quest Star tapes, which is a, a Roddenberry TV movie. And then two episodes of the Star Lost, you throw that in there. And then 79, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek 2, Star Trek 3, Star Trek 4, Star Trek 5, Star Trek 6, Star Trek Generations, Star Trek Video Games. Really, his career has definitely centered around Star Trek, especially later on in his career. He also played in uh, some Star Trek fan movies. He also played uh, Alfred Bester in Babylon 5. I was going to say Babylon 5. So that's a trifecta of of science fiction uh, franchises with Babylon 5, Star Trek, and the Star Lost with his (laughs) recurring characters on these things. Yeah, and he's, uh, I can tell you that he's also dabbled in the audio dramas as well. I bought, actually at the same Gen Con where I met him, uh, and I think he was selling them at his, uh, selling them himself too. He he had a this like multi CD pack that you got that was his own science fiction audio drama that he produced, and I I can't even remember what it's called. I have to go get it off my shelf right now. He was a uh, a writer, and so we're going to talk about that right now though, because 1973 was an interesting year for Star Trek. If you are following along with our bonus episodes over at buymeacoffee.com slash up from the ashes. And I, I think I mentioned this before, but I, I think I'm going to try and add in a uh, and do Patreon as well to make it easier for some people to support the podcast if they would like to and get, again, the same access to all of those those episodes. But he wrote an episode of Star Trek, the animated series. And the story behind him writing the episode of Star Trek, the animated series is that he brought a script in to Gene Roddenberry's secretary and asked her to type it. And she said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And then she said, you know what? We're going to show this to Gene. And so they showed it to Gene and Gene said, I like this. I like this a lot. You're, you're a good writer. Would you like to write an episode of Star Trek, the animated series? And he said, yeah, I'd love to. And so he does, he writes it. The unfortunate thing was at that point, they did kind of realize he was not going to be on the show and he was the only recurring regular cast member who was not on the show. The, the primary characters, Uhura, Sulu, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Chapel, those characters were all in the show and the actors were hired to come in and do the voices. He was the only one who was not invited to do a voice on the show. And I wonder sometimes if he was asked to write his episode because he wasn't going to be asked to come and be a voice actor. And so he wrote the episode, the infinite Vulcan, which is the one about the giant Vulcan, the, the, the giant clones. And so this, there's a scientist from the eugenics wars who clones himself ends up cloning Spock. And, but that was his episode. He then said, can I, read to see if I can play the part of the scientist. And they said, absolutely. You can read for the part of the scientist. And he tried out for the part of the scientist and the part of the scientist went to James Doohan, which (laughs) James Doohan was doing all of the extra voices on this show. Just tons of extra voices on this show. I think that because of Star Trek, the animated series, James Doohan gets the award for the most different characters in Star Trek in general, even beyond some of these character actors who played different characters in like every single series. James Doohan did multiple characters in multiple episodes of Star Trek, the animated series. Guess who else James Doohan voiced? Eric's the alien 
with three arms and three legs that took Chekhov's place <laughs> on the bridge as at navigation. Helm, at the yeah. helm, yeah. 1973, he writes this episode. 1973, he also goes to the Star Lost and does two episodes of the Star Lost. But do you remember me talking about who was originally going to be playing Devin if Harlan Ellison got his way? Walter Koenig was? was was Harlan Ellison's choice to play Devin. Guess who didn't get the part? Walter Koenig. Okay. And so they bring him on to play Oro, but that is some sort of leftover relationship with Harlan. I don't know how it all worked out. I don't know the details behind it. I would love to ask Walter Koenig if you know, what the details are there. <laughs> I bet he would be tickled to death if you, you know came up he, to he him might be and asked him about the star. He might be if I was able to get an answer from him about that. I I would do a special episode just about that little answer. But he became the only original cast actor to write an episode of for the cast that he was he was acting with as far as the original cast. He became the only writer not to do anything because you have movies, yeah. you have uh, Leonard Nimoy involved in 4, you have William Shatner <laughs> involved in 5. Which is still not the worst movie out there. What about it wasn't but, the Nimoy? Wasn't he was he directed? He was involved three, in three, he? but I don't know if he got a yeah. writing credit. I could I couldn't tell you. Off I know he directed that. it. So Walter Koenig goes on then to write an issue of the Star Trek comic book. He wrote his own comic book called uh, Raver or something like that. He wrote an episode of Land of the Lost. He wrote an episode of The Powers of Matthew Starr, which is a candidate. For a season two of Up From the Ashes, for certain. Never heard of that one. Oh, my word, Nathan. Matthew, what is it? It's not great. Matthew Starr? No, The Powers of Matthew Starr. of Matthew Starr. Is this like a bad 70s superhero show or something? Sort of. It's about an alien prince who gets exiled to Earth because... uh, Another invading alien uh, civilization is trying to to kill him. And so they they put him on Earth to protect him. Louis Gossett Jr. is uh, plays his protector on Earth. Really? Yeah. yeah. I remember watching that. That was another show I watched as a kid. It was not a Canadian show, but I watched it in Canada. And then he wrote a movie called Inalienable, which was the movie that you had to buy if you wanted to get the DVD of Star Trek of Gods and Men which was a fan series where characters or actors actually played the characters that they were. Uh, Nichelle Nichols was in it. Um, Tim Russ was in it. Um, Walter Koenig was in it. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think they even had the uh, uh, Harridan. He wrote Inalienable, and, and that was produced by kind of the same company. And since they couldn't sell Star Trek of Gods and Men and make a profit on that, they sold Inalienable, and if you bought Inalienable, you got the disc of In Gods of of Gods and Men, which I have, and is the only Star Trek fan production that I have watched, and the only Star Trek fan production that I have spent money on. <laughs> and there's a reason that it's the only. It was the first, and it was the last. And I know there's been some good stuff out there, but that thing, oh, I, I yeah. It was not. Apparently, I need to track this down. So, 
I've met Walter Koenig. You've met Walter Koenig. Um, I'm going to tell my quick story. I'll have you tell your quick story. But I went to a Star Trek convention when I was in high school in the in the early 90s. It was just before Star Trek V. And that's when I first heard what Star Trek V was going to be about. He says, we're filming Star Trek V. And it's called Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. People asked him, does it have anything to do with the the giant-sized novel? Because the at that time, pocketbooks did giant-sized novels. There was Enterprise, there was Strangers from the Sky, and then there was The Final Frontier, which was the first mission of the Starship Enterprise. I believe it had to do with Captain April. Um, it's been a long, long time since I've read it. And he's like, no, it has nothing to do with that book. Uh, in fact, what we do is uh, the crew of the Enterprise goes on a mission to find God. And as soon as he said that... The crowd booed and was like, oh, no, come on, come on. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, that would have been actually like 1988, I think, because Star Trek probably was 89. It, well, it, 89, so it would have been – well, it's still high school. Yeah. Then he starts talking about this movie that he's in with Bruce Campbell called Moontrap, and he shows a trailer for this. And I just remember this trailer was so scary to me. He tries really hard to be a cross between 2001 and and Alien. It, it really does. That's what it's trying to be. And it's the, the acting is not bad, but the effects really are. The creature effects look cool, but don't move well at all. I don't remember too much about it other than, okay, <laughs> this was... Because I, I didn't watch it back in the 80s. I watched it in college or just after college. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember him talking about that movie. I'm going to rent this. And so I did. But then I actually did get to meet him. I had him sign a 8x10 glossy that I bought at the convention. And for years had it uh, sitting on my dresser in a really cheap, chintzy, stupid little gold painted frame. But uh, it said to Ben. And then had his scribble that was his name. Mm-hmm. That's my quick version. Uh, also, my brother almost spilled coffee on him. My brother was in ah! third grade, came with us to the convention, was just not looking where he was walking, bumped right into uh, his gut. My brother's face planted into his his stomach, and he was holding coffee and almost spilled coffee on himself or on my brother's head, but didn't. He, he managed it. And uh, my brother just kept walking and my dad was like i think i think that's him and, and it was hey I, I think he's got better bragging rights than you at this point he's like my face went into his stomach <laughs> <laughs> years later i did go into a room with walter koenig um because i was doing an appearance at a convention and he was also doing an appearance at the convention and it was the room where they allowed the people who were set up there to go and get some food and so i did sit in the same room as him i did not approach him i did not talk to him okay so you you met him your convention was when it was i think around 2012 2013 i believe and it was at gen con which is a big gaming tabletop gaming convention held in indianapolis it attracts tens of thousands of people and for a while they actually did dabble in having celebrity guests they have gotten away from that unfortunately which is too bad because i got to meet some really cool people a lot of them star trek people thanks to gen con walter koenig was one of them what i remember obviously he's much older than when you met him so you know we're Mm -hmm. talking like 20 years later you know over more like 25 years later at this point so he's he's an older gentleman. I didn't get an autograph from him, but I did get a picture with him because I, I was prioritizing getting photographs over autographs at the time yeah. because I'm like, 
autographs are cool, but I could theoretically just buy these on eBay or something. I want photographic evidence that I met these people, so I always prioritize I prioritize the photographs. But anyway, so I go to meet him and I'm decked out. Like I've I've got you know a TOS uniform and everything. And one of the things that I did, I was tabling there with some of my books. So one of the things I I would do because I'm thinking you know, outside chance, you know, they, you know, I give them one of my books and they read it and then I'm going to get huge, you know, because they go tell people or whatever, you know, all because of a story I heard when I was in college about Ronald Reagan making Tom Clancy famous. <laughs> but, you know, I do the whole thing, get the picture with him and everything. And then I tell him, hey, really quick, you know, I have a gift for you. I told him I'm a writer here. Thanks for coming to the convention and all that sort of stuff. And I gave him a copy of the book. And his response was bizarre, <laughs> to say the least. Hmm. His response was, you know, as I said, like, I have something for you. He's like, oh, you do? Well, I can't wait to have it. I'm not kidding. That is how he reacted. And I was like, do I need to run? <laughs> Everything went pretty smoothly other than that very strange interaction. <laughs> Getting back into the Star Lost then. Like I said, he was friends with Harlan Ellison. And Harlan Ellison really wanted him to play the part of Devin. I'm not sure what kind of holdover there was, but the people in charge of the Star Lost did not want Walter Koenig. They wanted a, a bigger marquee actor. But Harlan Ellison does in his essay about the making of the Star Lost mention that Walter is a was a good friend of his. Um, I'm not sure how this friendship started, but um, Walter Koenig, I do uh, remember seeing some things from him uh, on social media when Harlan Ellison passed away. And so Walter was able to spend some time with him just before uh, Ellison passed away. And so like that, that was a... Uh, a friendship that that stood the test of time. I'm not sure, again, how close they were, but they were close enough. When Harlan wasn't doing well, Walter came and, and visited. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk about our episode. Let's talk about our episode. And I, I'm just going to throw this out here. I, I don't know when I'm going to actually define this in this episode, but this episode commits the absolute worst sin that a any kind of TV show or movie can possibly commit. And I don't know if I want to throw it out there right now or if I'm just going to use that as a little bit of a teaser, but it commits a cardinal sin of television, of media, of entertainment. And it is super unfortunate because Walter Koenig is in the middle of it and and might even be part of the problem. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll talk about it because I... I don't want to say anything bad about him because I like him. He's a, he's a likable guy. I like Chekhov as a character, but he's part of the problem here. But is it him or is it the director? Is it him or is it the script? I'll tell you right now, the script and the director are absolutely at the, at the front of this cardinal sin that this episode. I'm really curious to find out what this is because I'm like, did I catch it? You you may not have caught it as a cardinal sin, but I'm going to guess that you probably caught it, unless your opinion of this episode is very different from mine, I, which is possible. I, I, is I will possible. say this. I will say this. It's better than episode two. <laughs> episode two was so boring and nothing happens. This at least had some more drama going into it. Also, it expands the universe. Because now we have aliens. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yep. That was yep. that was the first. I think that actually was one of the first notes I wrote. It was like, so now we have aliens. <laughs> we do, and it's in the title. It's it's right there. the The title is you know what's the saying? Uh, it does what it says on the tin. It's called the Alien Oro. Yeah, and it's about a guy named Oro who is, who an, is alien. an alien. He's from another planet. He's from planet XR. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm not going to tell what it is right now. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. I'm just saying like, so now we have aliens. I'm, yeah. I'm still uh, having only watched the other two episodes. If I came into this completely cold, I probably wouldn't think anything of it. But given that I have seen the pilot in the second episode, I'm sitting here thinking, does this actually work? And on the, on one hand of like, okay, science fiction, deep space, space opera, I would normally say it's pretty natural, but we've never seen anything at all, at least as far as I know, at least in the episodes I've seen, that would that would say that there are extraterrestrials in this universe. I would say the one thing that in its favor is the universe of the ship is so self-contained that we don't know what happened on Earth. We just know Earth is super, super far away, super, super far away. And... And then the other thing is they don't even, I mean, they're still learning what space is, you know, they're still learning what planets are, you know, they're, I think that the slow unveiling of what is in this universe. And again, I don't know exactly how much Harlan Ellison had uh, his fingerprints on, on this, uh, the, the Bible of the show that I, I did read through, but it was a very quick read. I don't remember him saying anything about aliens. Other than it's possible that they're out there. I think he might have said something like that. And it's aliens in the in the Star Trek tradition. They're very humanoid. And that's that's a trope that I wrote down is that you have this is a alien who does not look different than a human at all. Like he is 100 percent human looking. He looks human. Yes. I think his alienness is in his is in his characterization. Yeah. Yeah, because there were po- I actually wrote in my notes was like, is he actually an android? Because that it, he, it's like it's like Walter Koenig trying to be Spock. <laughs> That's I had that thought as well. <laughs> well, yeah, let's 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 talk about the plot here. So just with our with act one, the, play, the credits have played. We got the music. We got the the you know clips, you know, from the episode. We got the actors and, and everything. Uh, and so now we start. A little bit unusually. Usually it starts with our three young people, Garth, uh, Garth, Rachel and Devin walking from one place to another. That's usually how it starts. But instead, we start with a strange little flying saucer, which has a silent pilot. And we overhear the strange silent pilots uh, instructions from his superiors. Find out a strange object in their space, investigate and return. But something goes wrong. And he can't control his ship. And he's pressing buttons. He's going to crash. He struggles with the controls. He doesn't say a word. He pantomimes really well that he's about to crash. And he crashes. And then we cut to our, our gang here. They're getting into spacesuits because there is a depressurized unit out there. And the computer isn't giving them the answers they want. Uh, they talk about, like, we, we why is why is it depressurized? I don't know. The computer won't say. Try in different words. Okay. And then he uses the exact same words that I'm assuming they used before. <laughs> Try in different words. Okay. Why is it depressurized? Like, that's the different words he's using. I don't understand. Garth gets upset, and we have the best line in the series so far. I, 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 I kid you not. 
the best line. It is so subtle. Wait, I want to see if I wrote it down. I want to see if I wrote okay. it down. Okay, all right. Garth is getting upset. He starts yelling at the computer, and the computer says, "Input is above acceptable limits. Please modulate your <laughs> yes! voice." Yes, I wrote it down. <laughs> In other words, you watch your tone with me, young man. Like he <laughs> like, is being. I, Put okay, in this his place. Scene, yeah, I was going to say, this scene... Okay. This scene immediately made me think. I was like, okay, as terrible as this show is, I feel like this scene predicted the future because this is all of us arguing with Alexa and Siri. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is funny, though. I mean, it's it's subtle. It's... But the 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 computer snark just is really I I found it I found it hilarious. The computer is my favorite character in this show. I'm just <laughs> so they do finally get an answer from the computer though. An outside force caused the break in this outside module or this this module this unit uh, caused the break about a year ago. They suit up to go out into this thing. That has no atmosphere. And they're tinfoil spacesuits. <laughs> These suits are not even, they don't even look like they're pretending to be airtight. You can oh, see no, the skin. Not. You can see the skin between the sleeve and the glove as he's pressing the buttons to go into the airlock. I used to bundle up better going outside to play in the snow than <laughs> they did here wearing these fake spacesuits. But they, they go out into the module. It's not a dome. Which I guess basically makes this a bottle episode by comparison. I mean, literally, the show the show is a bottle episode. Well, the show is a bottle episode, but they're I not mean, going to another dome and visiting a new No, it's interesting yeah. because once more, they're not going to another dome. They're in just another place, although they do talk about a dome. There is a yeah. dome and some, some ideas that are brought forward in where, where the dome where she comes from. If the show had lasted longer, I, I think they could have returned to her dome and actually gone to her dome and, and maybe even helped them with the problem that they had. Right. But, right. Uh, yeah. So they they go inside. There's a giant hole. Okay. Can, can we park here for a second? Yeah. Can we park here? Okay. Well, first off, think about the intro. The intro show told me something, well, showed me something that then ended up becoming a recurring problem in the rest of the episode. Which is they they try several times to pad it out with either special effect sequences or what I guess is supposed to be moments of wonder or something. We'll talk about the one that I think is the most obvious one later, but the opening with the pilot crashing. I felt like that went on a little too long, honestly. But this right here, the, the greed screening when they see the hole was just terrible. I was like, is this a really bad forced perspective or are those control panels supposed to be th as big as them? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's unfortunate. And you and see it twice. Great. You and see it here. And then it's, yeah. it's the last scene of the, well, they do, one of the, they last do the same, the, the same camera setup at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, just, I'm just like, no guys, no, no. It, I think unless they're supposed the to be that big, but then why are they that big? I, I think they're going for wonder here with, with the padding. It takes us back to the first episode where you got those reaction shots just straight on. And they kind of turn their head to look at the, the person next to them. But 
there's so little emotion going on on their faces. But this is the first time that we see them in spacesuits going out and looking out into space. This was supposed to be in the pilot episode. In the pilot episode, Devin was supposed to put on a spacesuit, go through an airlock, find actually floating dead bodies, and and walk or do a spacewalk uh, into this uh, unit where it's it's um, there's no gravity and there's no atmosphere. And yeah, so this... But this is uh, there's there is no wonder for us here. This there's there's nothing dramatic about this, other than it's the it's supposed to be dramatic. So feel dramatic, audience. <laughs> That's what I'm, I feel like is happening here. So <laughs> it, it's it's the television it's the TV drama equivalent of an applause sign. Yeah, yeah, almost, <laughs> almost. So. They go back inside. It seems like they're going back inside through a different entrance because I think they're exiting. Yeah. They came in screen right and they're exiting yeah, I mean, screen left. And then and when they do, and then in the last scene, it's opposite. Yeah, yeah. So when they do this, Garth sees somebody who's working at a table. But then when they look, she's gone. So they investigate and they are verbally kind of caught by a female voice that tells him, put your hands up. You have to leave. And then a man steps from the shadows. It's Chekhov in a gold yeah. foil suit. Also, I would like to say the the scene we talked about earlier with the snarky computer kind of set this up because we get basically the same thing. Except Devin figures it out and he's like, no, 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 no. You tell us who you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, There's not a lot play- of back we're not playing the game. Of- yeah, we're yeah. not playing the game. You come, you come tell us who we are. The Rachel's trying to go along with it, but the boys are like, no. <laughs> well, and again, it, there is a little bit of a mind, body, and soul thing going on here with this with our with our trio, and you have Devin who's trying to think his way through. You have Garth who wants to fight his way through. Who's just you know reacting in anger, and you have Rachel who's trying to feel her way through, and who's trying to like let's let's okay we can do this peacefully. Come on, guys, we can do this. It's okay. And Devin's like, no, no, no. You tell us. And he's he's doing the 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 sparring, the the intellectual sparring. And Garth is ready to like take up arms. And yeah. And so when they when they do actually then converse, um, Chekhov Oro is the guy's name. Has very little emotion, and he. It's very matter of fact. He does not correct Devin when Devin says the module had been hit by a, a big boulder. And and Oro just says a boulder indeed. Uh, mm-hmm. But he does promise that all their questions will be answered. And then a beautiful woman steps out from the right. shadows. Yeah. And, um, at this her, point, this is like this is feeling very TOS to me. Like this she feel- and she wear she's wearing a costume that could could have come straight. Well, from it's a toned down version. Original I did write that down, but like like this is like a toned down TOS guest, a guest female co-star, a classier version. Yeah. It's a classier way. It's basically a, a, it's all pink. So if you didn't like, they're accentuating the feminine as much as they can with her. Yeah. Yeah. So she, it's basically a pink one piece bathing suit with a gossamer skirt, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, there's been some other outfits like that already in in the show here, but uh, she says she calls herself Ygrek, 419B2, also known as Adana. And then they say, well, where do you come from? I told you, Ygrek. 
Which is interesting because apparently the naming conventions that they have in the dome that she comes from is you're named after the place and then you have a number, 419B2. But she also has a name that she uses. And we're going to find out about her dome. We're never going to see her dome. But there's one bit of curiosity that I have here, and that is where are these people from, Oro and Adana? Well, we're going to find out. But- she she actually explains who Oro is to them. She says Oro is from another planet. Devin and Garth are like, that could be the solution to all of our problems. They go to look for Oro. Um, Adana and Oro are both, they're in different places, but they're both doing soldering work and working on some sort of craft project. And when they talk to Oro, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing my thing. This is what I'm doing. Leave me alone soon. Very soon. I'm going to go home. Rachel has a moment with Adana, tells her about Cypress Corners. She's surprised to see Adana doing this kind of work because at their dome, uh, women would do sewing and, and um, you know, the, the women's work, you know, and the conversation is awkward though. Adana wants to get the work done. So Rachel wanders off after Devin told her not to like Devin says, don't go anywhere, stay here. And, and Adana's like, well, why would she go anywhere? Well, she would go somewhere, Adana, because you, annoyed with her and you're not listening to her and talking to her. So Rachel wanders off, finds the flying saucer, goes inside and gets okay. trapped inside. Okay. Okay. And this, this is where is... we cut to commercial. Yeah. Okay. This is the scene where I said like the padding, the attempted padding is the most apparent because we spend an entire like what, like single take shot of her just walking really slow around the Dr. Wiley flying saucer <laughs> and seeing what it is. And I'm like, after about 10 seconds of this, I'm like, do we really need to spend this much time of just her with the droning 70s soundtrack, just walking around the ship, no yeah. talking, and- no other characters, nothing. It's just, it's a full 360 around this thing. And then she gets inside and gets trapped. And I, I want to give kudos to the effects people, the miniature and the life-size version of this look good. It now, does. They don't, they don't look good, but they match. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put it that way. They, they match. And so nice work, nice job there. Okay. Um, but this is our, she screams, David! Commercial break. And then we come back and and we have a scene, a scene, a scene. She's screaming some more. A scene, a scene, a scene. It's just, it's so. It's almost funny after a while. And it's useless. Like it doesn't do anything to serve the plot. But here's, it's the cardinal sin. They are committing the cardinal sin and they're trying to do things. They know they're committing the sin, Nathan. They know it. And they're trying to do things to not do it, but they can't help themselves because the script doesn't have enough to get away from committing the sin. And the sin that they are committing is that this is boring. This is not <laughs> interesting at all. And so they're padding it out. They realize we don't have much of a story, so we have to pad it out. And they pad it out with boring stuff. Her getting trapped in the UFO is not exciting. It's goofy. And it makes her look like a ding dong. She's she's just trapped in this thing. She doesn't do 
anything proactive to get out of it. I, and it'd be one thing if like Oro was getting upset because she could have possibly done something to break the ship, you know, and, and, and use it to create some conflict or something. It does nothing except for creates a false sense of a cliffhanger as we go to commercial break, because as quickly as she gets in, they find her and get her out. Now we have some scenes that happen in between there. She's trapped in there for a while, but it just, this is, I'm going to say it. This is the first time in this show that I felt bored. Now it doesn't mean everything's super exciting in this show, but at least it's been interesting enough that I'm engaged enough that I don't mind that I'm watching these episodes multiple times to write notes Except for this one. This one, I'm just like, oh, I have to watch it again. It's just not interesting. And everyone's playing everything so flat. Especially Koenig. Like I said, he's he's basically doing his Leonard Nimoy impersonation. He is. But the question I have, it's definitely in the script. And is it in the direction? And is it in his character choices? His his choices specifically for what he does with the character. Back to the, back to the story. Oro has been tearing parts of the ship out of the ark to repair his ship. And he doesn't care. He tells Devin, it is a manifest right. impossibility to get the ark right off. Right. It's deadly yeah. course. And this was the point where I started, where I'm like, he, this is Koenig channeling Spock, except it's like the really cold practical version of Spock. Cause the thing that makes Spock interesting as a character is that he's, He's all about logic, but he's idealistic in his logic. Whereas, like, you look at Mirror Universe, Spock, who's a pragmatist. And then I've also seen characters written, you know, with, similar to Spock, who are presented as just cold and distant and uncaring. Spock is not uncaring. He hides it, it but he's not uncaring. And I'm going to give, I'm going to give this episode some help. I feel like they're doing that with Oro. He cares about Adana, but doesn't want to show that he cares about it. Right. Uh, right. About her. Yeah. He's also looking at this. This is something I noticed, particularly when we get to the end of the episode with the dynamic between Adana, Oro and Garth. Cause Garth fall, Gar- her and Garth fall in love with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oro is looking at it purely from a purely logical standpoint. If you stay here, you will die. Whereas she's like, I don't care if I'm going to die. I fell in love with this man. I want to stay with him. So she's making a very emotional decision. For what's left of my life, yeah. And Garth, on the other hand, yes, he's in love with her and would like her to stay and knows if he says, I want you to stay, she will. But he doesn't want her to die either. So he's willing to sacrifice his happiness for mm-hmm. her to survive. So he's kind of that, this middle ground between the two of them. He cares enough about her to let her go. On paper, it's a very nice dynamic. In execution, it comes off kind of weird and awkward. <laughs> because and that's flat. how the whole show, and flat. Because yeah. that's kind yeah. of how the whole show is, you know? So th- their situation is hopeless, according to Oro. Oro's situation is not hopeless. So why shouldn't he be just take what he wants from the Ark to fix his own little ship? Uh, meanwhile, Rachel is screaming, uh, and and meanwhile, Adana is soldering, and meanwhile, Garth is creeping. Okay, so he's 
<laughs> he comes, he has a conversation with her. They, they fall in TV love, you know, I mean, it's fast, uh, but it, but it happens. Uh, Devin and Oro have some back and forth. Uh, we get Oro's backstory when he says to, to Devin, it wasn't a boulder. It was me. I missed the docking port. I got here. I explored and I found the, some of the things I needed from your arc, but I also found Adana. I've been working on this. Devin, not not impressed. He's like, well, how are you going to get back? Walking. <laughs> and and this is where he's like, your young woman friend shares your curiosity. Where is she? Well, let's stroll there together because we're not going to do anything fast. And they stroll over to the ship. Rachel's screaming inside. They let her out. And uh, then Oro goes back to his work. And Dar- Garth and Devin have a conversation where he's like, hey, if... If he goes, he's going to take his knowledge and his skills. And and he's got mad skills. His very particular set of skills. Yeah, yeah. That make him a nightmare for people. (laughs) Anyway. And and Garth says he's also going to take Adana. And then we find out there's limited time for launch. Adana wants to stay, but there's not much time for her on the arc because she's going to die. She's sick and she's weak. And if if Oro can take her back to his planet, to XR, then they can help her with this vague sickness and and they can take care of her and she won't die. But Garth, he's spending time with her. He's blacksmithing. He's doing, he's got his set of skills and he's using his set of skills. But then as he's getting to know her and as he's even helping her to fix the ship, that's going to take her away inconveniently. The window for launch is now commercial break. Mm-hmm. I would just like to say, when you hear Oro say the name of his planet, like, okay, it sounds like two letters put together. Maybe it's spelled like E-X-A-R or something like that. But then when I actually looked it up, I'm like, it's spelled X-A-R. And that's how you pronounce it? That is definitely not how I pronounced it when I read it, but okay. (laughs) Okay, as long as it is consistent and it is across the board. It is consistent, I'll give them that. It's just not how I would have thought to pronounce it. This is the thing, we get... In this segment, we start getting the relationship dynamic or whatever between Oro and Adana. And it's not, I give him credit, it's not quite what I was thinking it was going to be. I thought it was going to turn into a love triangle. And it yeah, yeah. isn't, but it isn't at the same time because Adana's not in love with Oro, and Oro clearly does not love her. He's concerned for her, but he doesn't quote-unquote, love her. She says that she feels like she belongs to him, and Garth doesn't like that. Well, let's, let's get there. Let's yeah. get there. Yeah, and so, Ad- although Adana also says some things, like when she's talking about, it's like, oh, that's what women do in your culture? And she's, and while well, I do this, it, so, it, which almost sounds like, we'll say like second wave feminism, because that was a thing at this point. So, I don't know. So Adana's kind of got one foot in two different camps, I feel like here. Well, and as they're talking about those things, though, it's the whole like, well, we'll get there. Okay, so the navigation thing is complete. Uh, Devin, he he starts to try to work his logical magic on Oro, and and like you got to help us, you know. Come on, you know, there's there's thousands of lives here. We need you need to help us, and you may not even be able to find your ship. You don't have the precise navigational needs, but Oro has hope that he has not been forgotten on XR, and so. 
he he has hope that they are going to remember him and that they are going to help him. They're, the the ark is going to come close enough that there will be this window where he will be close enough to be able to get from the ark to his planet. And if they've launched during that window, he can still get home to his planet. Yeah. Meanwhile, Garth begins working his magic on Adana. Uh, so he offers to help her with the fixing of the ship. He listens to her backstory. She hates her old dome. It hurts her to even remember her dome. It was bad there, but she never really thought about it being bad until she found out there was another way of life. She left her dome because, uh, and I guess we can get into it here. Yeah. It's not this conversation, but we can get to it here. She left her dome and was wandering the tunnels until Oro found her. He was the first man over the age of 18 she had ever seen. And Garth is the second man over 18 that she's ever seen. She belongs to Oro because he saved her life. And so here's, here's the thing though. The men from her dome die young. And so they have to breed quickly. Problem was she couldn't have children. And so she didn't have any value to them. So she had to leave her dome. But the other problem was the thing that was killing off the men, the women were able to adapt to it, which goes back to like the Lorelei signal, which I talk about in our bonus episodes of the animated series, where there's something there's radiation on the planet that causes all the men to die. But the women are able to evolve and adapt to survive it and they become immortal, but they can't reproduce. And so they're going to be taken to another planet where they can uh, have men uh, be born and everything like that. But anyway, um, she she doesn't have any value to them and so she had she had to leave leave the dome and yeah so that's a lot this is where that is is a lot right there i am yeah that is set up for an entire story well and that's the thing is they could find that dome now and even though she wouldn't be there they could find that dome and actually like either help them to find a solution to that problem, get them to a different dome. Although the problem is because of the adaptations that the women made, she doesn't, she's not going to survive well outside of it. And so that's why she's so weak and sickly. Mm -hmm. Um, I could see, foresee the main conflict for that being that they're there long enough that whatever is killing the men starts affecting Garth and Devin. So it would probably end up being a very Rachel focused episode. And a very Star Trek feeling episode, which remi- it reminds me of Miri. You know, yeah, Miri. Yeah. All the, we, which we talked about in the episode with Mike Petit, but um, where all the adults died, the, the children now long live, but once they hit adulthood, they get the disease and start to die. And of course, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and, and Rand are getting that disease as well, and they have to find a cure. You know? So I, I could see a, yeah. an episode almost exactly like Miri happening in that dome. Right, I could see right. it if they made it. They didn't make it, so I can't see it. Right, but in it's my just, mind's eye, it's just one of those things. It. It's not just a simple backstory. Like it could have just been I left my dome, and and Oro saved me. No, it's like here's why I left, and here's a whole slew of yeah, quick yeah. world building that is an entire story unto itself. I mean, you want to make it even simpler. It could be his his ship crashed into her dome. And she was the only survivor and he saved her, you know, like you could boom, done. You don't even have to have any kind of weird things going on with her dome. It's just, you know, very, very simple storytelling there, but you know, they, they gave her a reason to need to leave. They gave her a reason to not want to go back or not be able to go back. 
and because that's the other solution to her problem. He says he has to come with her to his planet where they can help her. Or she could just go back to her dome. But yeah. She can't go back to her. Yeah. Dome. Well, and I see. So I see why they did this, because it creates the the the, the dramatic dilemma. It's not just simply a case of, oh, I quote unquote belong to him. I owe him for saving me. So I should go. So he wants to take me off of this place. No, he's like, no, I'm taking you away because if you stay, you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But this is the conversation, I think, where Garth is talking with her about Rachel and how he's concerned about her. She shouldn't even be out here. And and this is where she says to Garth, what should she be doing? Should she be churning and baking and sewing? And he says, well, is is there anything wrong with that? And she just kind of pauses and says, well, no, I I suppose it it matters who you would be churning and baking and sewing for. And there's definitely... I, I feel anyway, there's a woman's touch here that you wouldn't get from a male writer in the seventies. Yeah. Let's put it well, that way. That, and that's why I say, I feel like that's what makes Rachel kind of weird, but interesting at the same time, knowing that this is, you know, the early seventies here, why I feel like at points she feels like she is being written from this kind of second wave feminist perspective. But on the other hand, she seems very traditional. Well, and she has to feel traditional. That's the thing is Rachel comes from. Rachel's very corners. traditional. Yeah. Madonna is not. And yeah. And so you have the, the, the clash between the two of them. It's an interesting setup. And I feel like they could be setting up a, a dome for another episode, but they are deaf. We don't get there. We definitely do not go there. So we cut to commercial when she goes to Rachel and says, can I stay with you guys? Oh, you're going to tell Oro. I'll tell him later. David goes to Oro. And basically apologizes and starts trying. Okay, I'm gonna give you the I'm gonna give you the piece that I was actually hiding behind my back that I I wasn't gonna let you have, and I threatened to beat you over the head with it. I was gonna try. I was trying to remember if it was the scene you were talking about or a different one because you're like, oh, he tries to work his logic match it, and I was like, yeah. And then his logic turns into threats. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah. he's like, he, you he, need he, this, and I'm gonna. I, I want. Are you made of? But skidded bones, if I hit you with this, will it hurt? You know, that's sort of a yeah. fake. And I'm like, okay, man. Yeah. I mean, he's asking some really interesting questions. And we we never get the answer. We don't know. We, we don't. don't know if Oro really is just, you know, like, if he is even built like a human being. He looks human on the surface, but we don't know. And he's holding the, the part. I think it's like a s- small scuba tank. That's what it does look like. like- it's just—it's it, like they—it's it, it, like a case it. of hey, go find something normal and then dress it up to look sci-fi-ish. Come on, it they looks did, almost futuristic. Yeah, they yeah. did. Come on, sci-fi yeah. shows did this kind of stuff all the dang time. I will say I don't remember seeing any of the egg crate mattress cover soundproofing in this in this episode. So Rachel and Adana have a very non-bechtel conversation about Garth. <laughs> And she then I thought about that too, actually. <laughs> she then goes to help him with a panel on the UFO, falls on him, and they have to damage it in order to get it so it will they can pick okay. it up off of I him. I do not understand how this it is doesn't supposed, make any sense. Don't makes, even try. You have to rip up the wires that that and that will make it so that you could pick it up. It is yeah. And then apparently what she did ruined like months of work. Oro can't go home. So This is one of those cases of the plot points make emotional sense, 
but they make no mm-hmm. logical sense because we because yeah, this yeah. sets up Garth using his blacksmithing to fix the ship for Oro so he could take Adana away. This is him yeah. making the conscious choice to sacrifice his happiness with Adana. So, like, fine, I get it from that perspective, but it makes no sense. But then, yeah, it, it turns into Garth has to convince her to go. Mm-hmm. And Oro takes her. They head off for XR. The ship flies away. And we go back into the that original spot where the hole was in the in the module. And they're able to look out and see the ship go. And that's how it ends. That's how it ends. But but here's the ending. Here's the thing. This reminds me of something else. And I almost expected Garth Garth to say this. He didn't say this, but I almost expected him to say, you have to go. You have to go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Oro. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. And then I expect her to say, but what about us? And I expect Garth to say, we'll always have this This module. (laughs) But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Adana, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take that much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy arc. Someday you'll understand that. <laughs> that would have actually been an improvement. I've... It's Casablanca. Know, it is Casablanca. It is, Casablanca. It is 100%. He has to send her on her way. It's for her own good. It's for his own good. And he's going to uh, have his friends place their hands on his shoulder uh, as we get that emotional, tearful goodbye. Kind of. No. Yeah. It's the, the ending is a little abrupt and a little weird. I'm going to be honest. Uh, The forced perspective with the ship flying away in the hole is not great, but you, you did skip over the scene that had that line. I was talking about because it was Garth talking about Oro with, uh, with Rachel and Devin and saying like, can we even trust this yeah. guy? And his line was no pity, no love, no, no deceit. deceit. Yep. Which I thought I was like, you know, that's an interesting thing. And that was the scene where I realized, even though I went into it thinking this, it ended up not being the case. Oro is not a villain. No, no, he's a problem. At best, at worst, at worst, I should say he's an antagonist. But even that's stretching no, no, no. it a little bit. So Dan O'Bannon, um, I read his Dan O'Bannon's guide to screenplay structure, which actually he didn't okay. write the book, but he uh, he's the writer of Alien. He's he's written a lot of different things. He created uh, Alien Nation, the TV show, and a bunch of different things like that. Uh, Sequest. He oh, okay. Created that. The book is based on his teachings and his writings. Uh, but someone had to compile it together. But he has a concept that I love where instead of having a protagonist and an antagonist, his concept is protagonist and anti-protagonist. And it comes back to the idea of every villain is the hero of their own story. And, and you want to kind of approach villains in that way to make sure that they have good motivation for doing the bad things that they do. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're all bad guys. And this is definitely the case for Oro. He is not a bad guy. He is not coming into this with, you know, twirling his mustache to hurt the people. He is hurting them 
by taking things and stealing things from the Ark that they could probably potentially maybe need. But maybe that's part of the tension is even the heroes don't even know if they need these things. And he doesn't know either because he doesn't know how their technology works. But they do know that he could possibly help them, but he's not going to stay. He's not going to help them. So he's at odds with them. And this is, you know, so kudos to the screenwriters. They're at odds with each other because uh, I've taught that there's only one story in the world. And that story is somebody wanted something and something got in the way. And and when you kind of look at your storytelling in that way, everything kind of drives what does this person want? And then what brings the drama to it is what gets in their way. And so you have our characters who they want to save the arc. And he gets in their way because he is taking pieces from the Ark and he's also leaving with knowledge that could possibly help the Ark. They get in his way because they don't want him to leave. And he's like, I just want to go home and I need to take her with me now because I want to help her. Then Oro is in her way because he's going to take her away from Garth. Garth is in her way because he's going to push her away. And so you have the emotional character beats that you need you just don't have a script that carries those emotional character beats in a way that is interesting and makes logical sense Mm -hmm. yeah but like i said that's what that's what makes oro interesting because yeah like you said he's not setting out to hurt anybody and but just the idea that you know he has no love because he you know in garth's mind doesn't care about anybody he has no pity which because he doesn't care about their situation, but by extension, he doesn't lie to him. Right. I found that right. just that that concept just absolutely fascinating. He is so devoid of emotion, he doesn't even feel the need to deceive these people. No. no. Now I we did put up my notes, but you know he does have omission. He just doesn't tell them anything. They keep bringing up the accident that happened four hundred years before that screwed up everything. You know, put them in the situation that they're in now. He seems to know something. He does. But, but we, we <laughs> he knows something, but he won't tell him because omission. He doesn't lie, but he loves omission. His planet knew it, knew about it when it happened. Yeah, knew about it when it happened, and it affected Adana's dome. So the reason why her dome has been screwed up, the men die young and the, and the women die slower, has to do with what screwed up. The Ark, 400 years ago. So some of the the tropes that were in this episode, I was, first time I watched it, I was like, what are we even going to talk about? Well, there's a lot of stuff here, but it's all very commonplace tropes that I, that I noticed. One is flying saucers, which are cool. I love flying saucers. Aliens. Not just aliens, aliens who look like humans. So yeah, humanoid aliens. That's in Star Trek. That's in Stargate. Because it saves on budget. Although... They do come up with in-universe reasons for that. There's a whole TNG episode that explains why they're humanoid aliens. And in Stargate, they explain it because they said the aliens who are not humanoid, the parasites, the Ga'uld, took humans and planted them on different planets. But then here's the other thing that it has, and that is that the aliens speak the language of the people on the Ark. And you can't say that 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 Oro learned from Adana because and we're just going to call it English, but you can't say he learned English from her because when Garth overhears 
the radio signal from planet XR, he understands exactly what it means. And so this is just the default language of the universe is somehow everyone understands each other. Twilight Zone did it all the time when they would have aliens because they didn't they only had a half an hour. They didn't have time to explain anything else. And they certainly didn't have time to do. um, Oh, I can't remember what movie it was, but it was a Michael Crichton movie. Uh, the 13th warrior, I think it was with Antonio Banderas where they spent a good five, a good five minutes in the middle there to show him not understanding the people that he was kidnapped by and show him slowly coming to understanding. And then suddenly as you fade in, they're speaking English because he understands them. And you know, you just don't have time to do that in, in, in the span of time that you have for an episode like this, you do have, Star Trek with the universal translators. You do have different places where they're able to create a solution um, and and do so pretty quickly. But yeah. And then doing that, which I'm sure was probably initially done just for the sake of convenience, allowed them to do some interesting storytelling later on. Like you get to Enterprise and they have the universal translator doesn't learn very well. It doesn't work very well. You have Hoshi as a train who is their linguist you also have instances where it breaks mm-hmm. and you got to figure out what to do without it. If you've been used to having the universal translator, Oh, it's broken. What are we going to do now? Now we have a language barrier. And you also have, you have situations like arena and Darmok where you have, they're in a place where the translator doesn't help them in Darmok. That's the one where the translator works You get all the words, but you don't get the understanding of the words because of the basis of their language and the basis of their communication. And um, there's some interesting stuff there that that they're able to play with. Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing that I find really fascinating is when these creators come up with a solution to what would be a, a very obvious problem so they could just skirt around it and not have to worry about it. And then they realize there's potential with that. We could... Yeah, we can create story with this if we take it away or we play with it. Yeah, yeah. We've we've mentioned Star Trek, but you know, with with all of these, you have a lot of uh, you know Doctor Who plays with this as well, where there's so many aliens that look like humans. Um, not all of them, but some of them. And then you know you have they're all speaking English. <laughs> Everyone understands exactly what's being. Although said. with uh, with that with Doctor Who, they say the TARDIS does it. Well, except for when it, except for when it can't. Well, but even then, (laughs) like the the Daleks come and everyone understands what the Daleks are saying as they're. Well, yeah, but yeah, but like the TARDIS translates everything for everyone. The doctor called it one of the gifts of the TARDIS. But then I, they had that episode where the TARDIS couldn't translate anything and it was meant to be foreboding. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff here where it's, it's the tropes that you see so often, but that has to get used here because they need to use just shorthand to be able to get into the story. Right. Now they could have easily explained things away with Oro understanding their language because he spent time with Adana. They could have done that, but they didn't. It's very much like a, a Saturday morning cartoon where the aliens just show up. They're conquering everything. They're from a whole other planet, but it, you don't even bat an eye that they can speak English. Why? Because that's not the kind of storytelling they're trying to do. The, it, again, it goes back to emotional storytelling, versus logical storytelling and right but again unfortunately the emotional storytelling here just bored me it just did not interest me 
I'm just going to throw this out there. I am going to end up watching this episode one more time because I do have the movie that they did where they put these two episodes together and they called the movie The Alien Oro. Um, but I am going to watch the two-hour, well, 92-minute or whatever um, movie that they did on my VHS tape just to see what it's like before I record about the the return of Oro. So. Right. What about some of the... Do you think we at least hear about potential tropes with some of that backstory that we get? Yeah. So that's the other thing is when I was really thinking about it, the whole idea of adults dying, um, you know, people dying as they get to adulthood, definitely things that came to mind were the episode Miri um, and Logan's run is another one where, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's a different kind Although of thing. Although in that killing case, off, it's they, but, I was going to say they, uh, they euthanize them at yeah, age 30. That's a sci-fi idea that is probably the most original thing to this episode. Right. Is, right. It's also tar- they, even though it's affecting both the men and the women, they said the women adjusted better. And so it's targeting the men. So you have the the concept of what happens if you take one of uh, if you take men or women away. What how does that affect everything? I've seen a lot of sci-fi stories play with that, usually poorly. <laughs> we get the opposite in episode three. It's all men. So I I will say this: as much as we have bemoaned this episode, I do not bemoan Walter Koenig <laughs> at all. No, no. Uh, he uh, might be the best actor in this episode, <laughs> to be honest. So the other thing I'll say, Nathan, as we wrap this up, is that um, this is the worst I've seen so far of, of the show. This episode just is not great. They actually mm-hmm. pulled it out of order, though, out of production order. This was not the seventh episode produced, but I feel like they pulled it and put it earlier in the series release because it has this recognizable actor in it. Unfortunately, it doesn't live up to what could have been any kind of hype that they might have been able to get right, from right. a TV guide ad that shows that Star Trek's Walter Koenig is guest starring right. the Star Lost. Right. As bad as the show and the episode is, I'm intrigued enough to see what they would do bringing him back. And I'm wondering, is Adana going to be with him? Like, I have questions. I don't Knowing remember. That That's the back. thing. I have those same questions and I don't remember uh, what happened with her. So, yeah. And um, I'm also wondering, why would he come back? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I, I have what vague memory about why he comes back. Uh, but I, I do not. I do not remember. And I, I, I don't even remember what he does when he comes back. He returns. Okay beyond that so but as bad as this is and i don't know how long this episode is going to end up being this is the episode that has the longest recording time right now so mm-hmm. once i, I edit things like, down wow, we're going a while <laughs> yeah once i edit things down i'm hoping it, it gets down to a more manageable uh length of time but we've talked a lot about this so now part of it is walter Koenig, and part of yeah so we do need to wrap it up. So Nathan, once yes. more, tell us, how can we find you on the internet? Where can we find your work? The quickest places to find links to all of my socials is to go to my author website, NathanJSMarchand.com. It's got a blog where I have announcements about all the, you know, the things that I'm doing. And, you know, sometimes my, you know, my random ramblings of just some crazy idea comes to my head and I want to explore it. For the podcast, check out the Monster Island Film Vault.com, which has links to all the places where you can find it. And then you can check out my other podcasts that I do. 
Henshin Men, which is about Japanese superheroes, mostly television focused, and although this one is about to wrap up, uh, The Power Trip, A Journey Through the Power Rangers franchise, which is obviously about Power Rangers and also about Super Sentai on occasion. Well, thanks for joining me, Nathan. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure to spend time with you and everyone else. If you are listening right now, then uh, please remember that you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash up from the ashes. And tomorrow, if you are listening to this on day of release, but uh, November 3rd, 1973 was the episode Once Upon a Planet from Star Trek, the animated series. And I'll be talking about that over on that feed. And so until I until I talk with you next time, I just want to say thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you so much for spending time just listening to the rants, listening to the geeky talk and listening to our uh for someone who calls himself the biggest fan of the star Wars that I know, um, I really didn't like this episode that much. So thanks for uh, suffering through it with me though. I appreciate it. And as you are flying with your flying saucer through the metaphorical void of space, watch out for stray arcs. And if you do come across an arc, at least try and get the docking bay and don't just crash into the hull. But wherever you're going in that flying saucer of life, I want to wish you Godspeed. <laughs>